Uh, well, let me add my welcome. My name is John T. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Globe Church. It's my huge privilege this afternoon to uh, have God's word open in front of us and for us to look at this together and to try to understand, and not just to understand, but actually to hear, to hear what God is saying to us as his church. So we're in 1 Corinthians. I'd love you to turn there. It's page 1144. There's plenty of Bibles around. There's a bit of space on the back of the sheets if you want to scribble some notes down. It may help you to, to concentrate. But our, our pattern as a church is to take a Bible book. It's normally what we do. We take a Bible book and we just work through it a little bit at a time. Today's sermon uh, is, hmm, I reckon, about somewhere between 70 and 80 minutes long. Uh, genuinely. But it's okay because I've decided that we'll do half this week. And the other half next week. So this is one sermon split over two weeks. And you'll see why. Because when I show you the passage we're going to look at, and there's so much here. I, I, as I was preparing, I thought, there's too much. I can't talk for 80 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so um, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, through to 2, 5. But it's all one section, right? It's all one thing that we're learning. And therefore, I want to take a couple of weeks to, to dig into it together. So let let me read it. Uh, I'd love you to have it open, follow it with me, and let's hear uh, God's word. So we're going to go from, uh, actually from verse 10. Here we go. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. I love that. <clears throat> I love the way Paul's like, uh, was anyone else? There'll be someone in Corinth going, well, you baptised me. He doesn't even remember. <laughs> I love Paul. It gives me great hope as a pastor. Here we go. 4, verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, That gives me great hope as a pastor. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I mean, you take my point. There's a lot there. This is massively important for our understanding of this book of 1 Corinthians. And we started last week in this book and we said that the church in Corinth was messed up. There was division, there was sexual immorality, there was selfishness, there was chaos. It was a messed up church. But if you were here last week, then perhaps you'll remember the reason that a church gets messed up is when Jesus gets pushed out. The church gets messed up when Jesus gets pushed out. And that's what we're going to be seeing over and over again in the book of Corinth. What Paul does is he says, I want to put Christ back. I want to ram Christ back into the church in Corinth because that's the only hope you've got. But before we get to all that, I want to start with a story. I want to tell you about a man. Once upon a time, there was a man, an important man. He was the commander of a very great army. He was a valiant soldier. He was highly regarded, but... He was ill. He had a terrible skin disease called leprosy. And so you have this extraordinary thing of this powerful man who has this disease that he can do nothing about and which is killing him. And to cut a long story short, he eventually seeks out the help of a man called Elisha, a prophet in the country of Israel. And he goes to Elisha's house to see if Elisha will help him. By the way, this is a story in the Bible. Uh, you find it back in 2 Kings chapter 5. Let me read you what happens. Don't worry about turning to it. Um, so it's in 2 Kings 5. Here it is. And uh, he goes to Elisha's house and he says, I've come. He's got loads of gifts for Elisha. He's got loads of money. And he says, uh, I, I want you to heal me. Uh, Elisha sent a message to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Naaman, that's the name of the man, what's his response? Elisha says, doesn't even come out of his house. He's like, I'll go and tell him to wash in the Jordan. Listen to Naaman's response. Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. I thought he would do something impressive. 
I could have gone and washed in any river. This is ridiculous. Do you see what he's offended by? He's offended because the answer is just too ordinary. It is offensively ordinary. And I want to suggest that all of us have something in us that craves a spectacular thing. We want something impressive. It's it's funny, isn't it? Naaman going, could he not come and just wave his hands? Do something. We all want that. We love something spectacular. We crave spectacularity. We want, I don't know if that's a word, we want the impressive. We want something that makes us go, wow. We're captivated by what is impressive. And we want to get close to what is impressive. Look, who who sponsors uh, Manchester football, Manchester United football team? Who sponsors them? Anyone know? Chevrolet sponsors them, right? Quite a few of you knew that. Who sponsors? Uh, who sponsors um, Accrington Stanley? Exactly. <laughs> that is a joke that none of you will understand <laughs> if you if you're younger than forty. <laughs> uh, you see, sponsors want to be associated with what is impressive. They pay huge amounts of money to be tied, to be in association with what is impressive. This is what we're like. We crave something spectacular. If you've seen the film Aladdin, I just want to load this up, all right, and get it. If you've seen the, the film Aladdin, the monkey in the cave of wonders, they're going for a lamp. The lamp is just so boring and ordinary, it just looks unimpressive. The monkey sees a big red thing, jewel, and its eyes are. And it goes for the, it's just captivated. That's what we're like. We love what is impressive and we despise what is ordinary and unimpressive. And can I say this, maybe slightly controversially, but I think it's true. We love to be associated with impressive churches. If you're a Christian, I would be very surprised if there wasn't something in your heart that wanted to be associated with a successful, impressive, magnificent church. Because it makes us feel good. We love it. That's certainly true for the church in Corinth. They just found ordinary a bit ordinary. Well, here's, here's my first big point. And it's a bit of a downer. Uh, having said all I've said so far. My first big point is this. The gospel is unimpressive. That's what what we've just read in 1 Corinthians. That's what I'm going to try and show you now. The gospel is distinctly unimpressive. Just have a look with me. Um, We're going to pick out some verses and try and get a feel for the whole uh, section that we read. But look what Paul says in verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What is Paul's message? What is the gospel he preaches? It is the cross of Christ. That's, his, that's how he sums it up. He says it again uh, down in um, verse 23. This is so strong. 
Here is Paul writing to this church. He says, we preach Christ crucified. That's our message. To uh, go over to chapter 2, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here is the message at the heart of the gospel. It is Christ crucified. And those two words, if you understood those two words properly, you would feel there is an incredible crunch between those two words. They are two words that should not be put together. There's a dynamic between those two words, Christ crucified, which to the world is just madness. I need to show you that. You need to understand why Christ crucified is a problem, if you can understand this book of Corinthians. It is a shameful thing. Look, okay, let's take the two things. Christ crucified. Christ, we've already been singing this um, about Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah. Messiah is the Christ, right? He is the Christ. It is not just his surname, it is his title. It describes who he is. It describes his role. To be the Christ is to be the promised, heroic, saviour, king. Back in the Old Testament, back in Psalm 2, God had spoken about this Christ, this king. He says that the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed one. And then God responds to them and says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule them with an iron scepter and break them to pieces like pottery. You, my Messiah, my power. Listen, I don't know how to convey just what a big word that is. It is loaded with so much weight. It should come at you like a tidal wave of his Christ. There is no title higher. There's no way of explaining it more. He is the Christ. But as soon as you attach the word crucified to it, you blow people's minds. Now this happens in other circumstances where you attach a word and it completely changes the meaning. So imagine I said to you, I was a billionaire. I think you'd be impressed. I think you'd, some of you... I think you think, yes, this is the church for me. This is definitely the church for me. Although, if I was a billionaire, we probably wouldn't be meeting in here. Anyway, uh, billion, lovely though. Uh, imagine I was a billionaire. I said, I'm a billionaire. Now imagine I say, I'm a bankrupt billionaire. Do you see, do you see what happens? Suddenly, the billionaire's lost all his everything. What a loser. You blew a billion pounds. What a complete joke. What a pathetic waste of space you are. I'm going to go and find another church. I'm not a billionaire or a bankrupt billionaire. I'm just a guy. Um, but that's the problem. That's what happens. He's the Christ. Wow, the Christ? Really? He's the Christ crucified. Oh, what a loser. What a joke. A Christ that's crucified. That's just useless. You see, we have to understand that to be crucified was not a heroic thing. People did not look and go, crucifixion. Wow, that's heroic. To be crucified was the height of shame. It was to be publicly humiliated. No one was impressed by someone hanging dead on a cross. 
He's exposed. He's naked. He's hanging. It's shameful. He's Christ crucified. It is not impressive. In fact, he's a failure. A loser. That's what Christ crucified means. Now I can almost, right, it's, it's so hard, isn't it? Because there's almost something in it going, no, 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 because it's actually really, really good. It's good he's crucified. I know that. No, you have to stop that little voice. Shut that little voice up because that's not the voice the world is saying. That's your voice if you're a Christian because you know what's coming. And I'm going to get, that's my third point. You can't go there yet. You have to go through point one first. And that is that the cross is unimpressive. You have to understand that our world is not impressed by a Christ who's crucified. It's impressed by a Christ who feeds the hungry and raises the dead and heals the... Listen, if Christ had wanted to impress people, he had quite a lot going for him. I find this this has been kind of the light bulb moment this week has been the moment when I sat there and I thought, Jesus never set out to impress anyone. He was never trying to impress people. He was never trying to show people how great he was. You know when you do something, and we all do this, I do, 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 do it about me, because it's a bit less kind of like in your face. When I do stuff, I want people to be impressed. I say something and I think, oh, I wonder what they thought of me. I wonder if they like that. You know, I cook you a cake and you can... And uh, you come around for dinner, I cook you a cake, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I hope they, do they like it? I don't know if they like it. Do they like it? That is because I want you to be impressed with me. Jesus never did that. Jesus never thought to himself, oh, do they like me or not? I'm not sure. I feel nervous. Are they impressed? What a staggering difference. Because Jesus is not interested in impressing you. The gospel is profoundly unimpressive. It is Christ. Crucified. Now, I want you. To, I really want to push this, okay? Because me, we might want to say, yes, the gospel seems unimpressive, but of course, we know it's not really. Now, I want to, that's not what Paul's saying. He is actually saying it is unimpressive. So, go back to Aladdin. Aladdin. Sorry, I was having a bit of an Aladdin thing this week. Aladdin is described as being like a diamond in the rough. He doesn't look that much, but actually when you look underneath, you see there's real something to him. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that the gospel is, you know, seems unimpressive, but actually deep down it's really impressive. No, he's not saying that. He's saying in a worldly sense, it just is unimpressive. Christ was crucified. He was dead. Now we have to embrace that. You have to understand that it's not impressive. That means if you are trying to find something to associate with that is powerful and impressive to our world, you've chosen the wrong thing. Because Christ is not impressive to our world. Here's my second point. First point, the gospel is unimpressive. Secondly, it is intentionally unimpressive. It is intentionally unimpressive. It's not just that the gospel happens to be unimpressive. God has deliberately designed it so that it will be unimpressive. Because he knows that our human craving for the spectacular is actually a serious disease. 
It is a serious problem. So let's, let's get into this a little bit more. I want you to feel this. I'm going to read from verse 18 and 19. I want to show you what God, why God has made the gospel unimpressive. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Now, if someone says to you they are going to destroy something, that is quite strong. God says, and it's a quote from Isaiah 29, God said, the Old Testament, God says, I am going to destroy human wisdom. There is something about human wisdom that isn't just neutral, but is actually opposed to God. And God says, I'm going to destroy it. And the way I'm going to destroy human wisdom is by an unimpressive gospel. That's how I'm going to do it. You see, God will not tolerate and flatter and say, oh, you're terrific people. Actually, God says, no, if you are pursuing a human wisdom, that is, if you are seeking a wisdom that elevates humanity, that is all about us, God says that is deeply, deeply wrong. And God says he will destroy it. Because it's opposed to him. And so he goes on, verse 20. And look, he is sort... Paul is sort of taunting, isn't he? Come on, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Right, look at verse 21. Let's try and pick this out. I know we're getting into the kind of tired zone but let's uh, try and verse 21 is a, is a mind-bending verse you've got to look it's complicated try and get the logic of verse 21 for since in the wisdom of god the world through its wisdom did not know him god was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe right let's just do that in bits the wisdom of, so since in the wisdom of god The world, through its wisdom, did not know him. I've been puzzling this week, saying, well, why do you need the first bit? Why doesn't it just say, because the world in its wisdom didn't know God, God decided to preach a foolish message. It doesn't say that. It says, it was God's wisdom that the world shouldn't know God through its own wisdom. If you're lost, don't worry. I'll tell you when you can come back. The point is that God is intentionally making it so that human wisdom will not be successful. Because God will not allow humanity to puff ourselves up and to say, look, we can sort this out. God's wisdom intentionally undermines human wisdom. Let me put it another way, perhaps a slightly simpler way. God is not a salesman. God is not trying to sell you something. God doesn't come and appeal to your wisdom. You see, that's how advertising works, right? That's how salesmen work. I remember once, I was at a market, I can't remember where it was, and uh, I, was with, I was only about 12, and I was with my family, and we were on holiday, and we were watching a man chopping vegetables with a vegetable chopping thing. And uh, he was selling these vegetable chopping devices. It was spellbinding. I can. St- I remember it. I don't remember much about my childhood, but I remember this guy. 
he was chopping vegetables. And as he did it, he was explaining all the things this thing... I was completely captivated. I was like, that is, that is like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and then he got to the end and he said, this only costs 50 pounds. I was like, mum, we have to get one of those. <laughs> this is, can't, I can't live without that. It's like, what are we going to do? Our vegetables are going to be so poor. <laughs> See, we're used to the salesman patter, right? We didn't get one. Because uh, my mum's not that daft. And, uh, and sometimes we imagine that God has to sort of impress us. What was that man trying to do? He was trying to impress. He was trying to say, look how impressive this is and how much it can improve your life. And sometimes we imagine that God must be like, come then, God impress me. Why should I believe in you? Do something impressive. <laughs> Who the hell do we think we are? <laughs> What's that? As if God has to prove himself to us. God isn't trying to sell us something. God isn't saying, hey, look, here's all the stuff I can do to improve your life. Here's all the things I could give you. Come on, why don't you believe in me? No, human wisdom in our arrogance, we live as if he doesn't exist. And we live for ourselves and we live to flatter ourselves and we live to try and be impressive and to be impressed. And God says, no, the only way you're going to believe in me is if you believe this unimpressive message. It's going to take humility. I find that really challenging. We demand signs. We look for wisdom. And how many times, how many times have you thought to yourself, well, if only I could just pull off a miracle. You know, if only I could call down fire on my lunchbox. You know, <laughs> Here I am in my work, you know, got my sandwiches, having a conversation about God. They said, there's no evidence for God. Okay, right, let's do it here. God, burn up my lunchbox. You do that sort of thing in the Old Testament. Do it now. Why doesn't God do that? Because God preaches an unimpressive message. And he doesn't play our games. He doesn't pander to our pride. Instead, he says, no, no, you believe my message, a message of weakness, a message that's unimpressive. So it's, the gospel message is unimpressive, it's intentionally unimpressive. Here we go, the third point, um, it is gloriously powerful. This is the third point, right? This is the point that you've all been going, yeah, but we know, yeah, okay, it's now. There is Massive power. And Paul is under no illusion. So have a look uh, back at verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There is massive power in the gospel. In this message of Christ crucified, right? In that crunch, in that conflict between Christ crucified, in the crunch of those two words is the hope for our world (laughs) if you can understand that paradox that juxtaposition christ crucified you get that you get the gospel this is the gospel christ the all powerful glorious majestic lord of all king of kings went to a cross and was crucified 
to save the world. That's the power. That's the message. God saves the world through weakness. Through what seems so weak. He goes, you know what? My weakness is stronger than your pathetic attempts at strength. And so God, in his magnificent wisdom and power, sent his son to die on a cross. And as Jesus died on the cross, all of the punishment, all of the shame, all of the the darkness that I deserve for my arrogance was taken by him. So that God could say to me, just believe. And there's something in me, in my name and heart that goes, oh, surely it's more impressive than that. Can't you wave your hands over the spot? Can't you do something better? No, you believe. So that anyone who believes, here it is, right? Have a look down. Um, have a look down again at verse uh, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God's desire, uh, if you don't remember anything else, this is it, right? This is what I want you to, if you were tweeting, not that you should, because that's, uh, whatever. This is it, this is it, right? God is not interested in impressing you. He's interested in saving you. And it is a completely different thing. If you've come to church to be impressed, go home. If you've come to church to be saved, Welcome home. Do you not see? This is the gospel. This is the power. And we have to embrace this message. And you will be thought of as mad. Your friends will think you're crazy for believing this message. I say it's so weak, really? That's pathetic. And yet as we speak this message of Christ crucified, as we speak that, we discover that God is calling people to himself and there are some who will say, I see it. I get it. He did it for me. And it's as we preach this message. And so here's Paul saying, I'm going to preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ. Okay. Um, We need to wrap up for today. There's a whole other sermon coming next week. But just uh, four points by way of application. Um, Very quickly. This is how you know when you're falling into the trap of craving spectacular. When you prefer preachers to preaching. When you talk about preachers rather than talk about preaching, that's that's a problem. I've got my favorite preacher. Forget the preacher. How much do you love Christ crucified? You have to prefer preaching to preachers. When we prefer church to Christ. In other words, when we talk about church, I find it really, I was around at my neighbor's house this morning. It's dead easy to talk about church, actually. Particularly when it's growing. It's growing. Why do I want him to know that it's grown? Why do I want him to know that there's like, I don't know, 100 people now? Why do I want him to know that? Because that's impressive. Will I say to him, actually, we, we worship Christ, the one who's crucified for us. You'll know that your craving is spectacular when you value some people more than others. When actually you think those people are more impressive. They count a little bit more. 
That's why next week we're going to see all this stuff about, think of what you were. You're not impressive. Not many of you are noble. Perhaps a couple of you, but not many. Not many are wise. Don't, don't, don't value some over the others. Do you not see if, if it's Christ crucified? It doesn't, we'd have to impress. And fourthly, when we care more about style than substance. When we want it to be flashy. I've got to say to you, I find this passage so challenging. And we're going to work out more of this next week and really try and rub it home next week. But I find this so challenging. I want an impressive church. I want to be an impressive preacher. And it sucks. And it's rubbish. And it empties the cross of its power. Oh, please, God, save us from being a church that empties the cross of its power by being obsessed with needing to be impressive. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray. Um, There's lots, lots more that we're going to dig out of this next week. Um, But for the time being, let's, let's revel in this message that is weak, that is unimpressive, that is intentionally unimpressive, but actually is gloriously powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we read this chunk of your word and we, I, don't know, I, I marvel at your wisdom that you should have found a way to save the world that actually completely destroys human wisdom, that doesn't pander or flatter us or try to impress us. Father, we pray that we would not be ashamed of the weakness of the cross that we would not despise the weakness of Christ crucified, but would instead see in that, those two words, the power of God for salvation. Thank you that you save us. Thank you for Christ crucified. We worship you in his name. Amen.